And everyone else, I'd invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 3. Years ago, I was in a uh, seminar, and I was asked to preach for a gentleman in Kansas. And uh, so it was, I think it was about a six-hour one-way drive for me. Um, but he was telling me that he, he was in the midst of a, a series, and he had just noticed that frequently, chapter 3, verse 16, or chapter 3, 15, chapter 3, 17, was, was a significant verse. And so he was preaching through all the 316s of the Bible, and I thought, what a cool idea. Um, I haven't done it yet, but one day we may just do that, because he, he was exactly right. This is one example of that. Let's look at, uh, I'm going to go ahead and read verses 13 through 17, but our meditation this morning is going to be just verses 16 and 17. Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answering said to him, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he permitted him. After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Let's pray. What a moment that would have been, O oh God. Think of the significance to John the Baptist of the crowds that were there and the tender mercies that you showed to Jesus himself. Lord, you're amazing. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we praise you. We pray for our kids and children's worship. Lord, would you please help them to know you would the message be one in which they are invited to put their trust in Jesus, you who have died for their sins? And for us, Lord, would you help us to glory in the great salvation that you offer? Would you expand our knowledge of you, our God, that we might grasp a little more of the significance that you are three in one? And would you give us what we need as we face this next week? We ask that you would do this for Jesus' sake. Amen. <clears throat> so every year I, I choose a theme uh, for the preaching ministry for the coming year. And uh, uh, the last couple years, it's taken us through the book of Hebrews, it, uh, following Jesus, and then uh, continuing forward to, to keep moving forward. And as I was just thinking about what we need for next year, and it was even back in, in uh, March when we were in, in Africa, I was really praying through the idea, and, and the thought came of, of the intimacy with God. And uh, so next year, we're going to be going through uh, chapters 13 through 17 of the Gospel of John, which is kind of the, the upper room discourse and the, the high priestly prayer of Jesus, in which Jesus is, on this, this, this last night on earth, is spending it with his disciples. And he's just pouring himself into their lives and, 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 and uh, drawing them closer to himself and giving them what they're going to need, knowing that he's going to be leaving them. And, and that, that intimate time of Jesus and his disciples, I thought it would be something that would be beneficial to us as a, as a congregation. But 
Also in designing the preaching for this year, I thought toward the end of this year, why don't we take a little bit of time and just meditate on some of the attributes of God. And so that's kind of getting us to be thinking about, well, who, well, who is God and, and, and this God that we're going to have this intimate relationship with? Let's, let's understand him a little bit. And a couple weeks ago, three weeks ago, it's been a while, by the way, um, I, I was supposed to say, I'm, I'm doing well. Thank you for praying. Please keep praying. Um, we, I'm, I'm, I'm healing. I appreciate that uh, we had Luke Leduc and then uh, Jim Tyson to be able to fill in for me the last uh, couple weeks, and I thought they did a, a great job. We joined you online, and that was, that was good. Uh, but, so it was about three weeks ago that we went through the attribute of that God is simple. And uh, I think Jen and I have talked about it a lot lately. Simple does not mean easy, right? He's simple. That means he's, he's not complex. He's not a, a bunch of different parts that are all connected, but he is a united whole. What we saw in Deuteronomy 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. He's one. He's simple. And we meditated on that for a while. And, and this morning I wanted us to consider the, the Trinity and what it means that, that God is triune. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 6, asks the question, how many persons are there in the Godhead? And the answer is there are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are one God, the same in substance, equal in power and glory. This is our a formulation of the doctrine of the Trinity. These are the, the words that tell us to understand the Trinity as much as we can. Because how do we understand a God who is three in one? We, 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 right? We're made up of, we've got a spirit and, and body and, and, and two parts, but one, one, one person, and, and yet he's three persons and one part, if you will. And we can't grasp that. I often use the illustration primarily because of Star Trek. The, there is an episode in which the, the Enterprise is, is caught by a, a, a group of two-dimensional beings and they were moving it along, which is a great idea because we think of two-dimensional as really flat, but it's not because being really flat still has a third dimension. And so they didn't quite get it. But, but the idea, they're trying to, to get us to think about something that's beyond. We can't understand a two-dimensional existence or a one-dimensional. There's no way we can understand the Trinity. But we can, we can approximate and, and try, to, try to put it into the words of our language to the best that we can. And that's what we're going to try to consider. Well, in, in Matthew chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, which is the beginning of Jesus' ministry, as he's just getting started, he's making this transition from, from carpenter to rabbi, if you will. And he comes to John and he's baptized by John. And it's the, it's the start of that ministry. And at the beginning of this ministry, we have the triune God showing up and revealing himself to all of the people who are there. As the Father speaks, the Spirit descends, and the Son is present. And so I thought this would be a place for us to just meditate together on the idea of the Trinity and, and understanding how it affects us. And one of the ways it affects us is, is recognizing what was the purpose of Jesus' ministry. Right? Jesus' ministry wasn't about teaching, although he taught. Jesus' ministry wasn't about healing the sick, although he healed the sick. Jesus' ministry wasn't about fussing with the Pharisees. Jesus' ministry was about the cross. He came to earth to die for our sins. And he began that ministry, our salvation. And at the beginning of this ministry to provide salvation for his people, 
all three members of the Godhead show up to remind us that we are saved not just by Jesus. We are saved by the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit provide us our salvation. So let's consider this together. What does this mean for us? Well, it means that I need to, first off, to trust Jesus, who is the Son. And we see this in verse 16. In verse 16, after being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. The first place that this passage takes our eyes is on the Lord Jesus Christ. The focal point is him. He's the beginning place. We see in other places in Ephesians chapter 1 that he is the summation of all of it that God sums up all of creation in Jesus. And so the focus is on him, and we are to trust him. There was a time in my life that I really disliked flying. I was very nervous every time I got on a plane. I just didn't like it. And I remember telling Rob, and I said, and I'm, I get on the plane and I'm thinking, man, I'm not in control. I really, I want to be up in the cockpit. I mean, that's, that's where I'd feel safer. And she looks at me and she says, but you don't know how to fly a plane. <laughs> that is a problem <laughs> that was for me and all of the passengers. And it, and it showed just how not very bright I am. <laughs> but I think it's true of, of a lot of us, isn't it? That we want control even when we don't know how to control or how to accomplish what we're talking about, what we're, what we're looking for in our life. Trust involves relinquishing control. When you get on that plane, you have to trust the pilot knows what they're doing, right? You have no control. You have to trust that the technicians that have checked it have done so well and carefully. You've got to trust that the people who built the plane were competent at their job, right? There's an awful lot of trust that goes into that moment. And it's trust that means I don't have control. That relinquishing of control also has to happen at about 2 o'clock in the morning. Right? When you wake up and you're worrying about everything. And you can't get back to sleep until you relinquish that control and say, Lord, this is yours. I don't know what you're going to do with it, but I'm going to trust you and relinquish control. I don't have to be in charge. You are. This is Jesus' baptism. And I want us to think about that for just a moment, the significance of this. Jesus is being baptized Jesus, who is the eternal God, who a few thousand years before this baptism had said, let there be light, and there was light. This is the same one who is now presenting himself to be baptized in this moment. He receives this sign to begin his ministry. Isn't that Jesus exhibiting some level of trust? He who is the creator is saying, I'm still going to submit myself to this. And he relinquishes himself to that and, and shows us 
that trust is the right thing. What do we trust Jesus to do? Well, first, I think we trust him to that he obeyed for you. I think that's an important sentence to remember. He obeyed for me. And what does that mean, that concept? Notice the exchange between John and Jesus in verses 13 through 15. Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answering said to him, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. This act of his being baptized was for the purpose of fulfilling righteousness that it was necessary in accomplishing the righteousness that was necessary for the salvation of all of his people for Jesus to be baptized by John at this point. This reminds me of uh, just a a couple chapters later, Jesus talks about fulfilling righteousness again in in chapter 5 and verse 20 during the Sermon on the Mount. He says to the crowd, For I say to you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. He reminds them that they need a righteousness that goes beyond anything they could ever do. The, the scribes and Pharisees were, were not people that he, that he was viewing at this time and just saying, oh, they're not very righteous. No, no, no. He's lifting them up as the epitome of human righteousness, the most righteous that is possible. And he's saying, your righteousness has got to be way past that or you can't even be saved. You need something way beyond the best that you can possibly do. And Jesus is telling John essentially the same thing. I've got to provide that righteousness. That righteousness is going to be necessary in order for anyone to be saved. So John, let's let's do this together. Now we live in an age in which our response would be, yeah, but Jesus, you're God, you're above the law. You don't have to do that, right? Isn't that basically what we see? The people that the lawgiver doesn't necessarily have to follow the law. But Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. It's essential that I, as the lawgiver, also fulfill the law. That's why he allowed himself to be born and to be circumcised on the eighth day and to have all the sacrifices done precisely at the right time and the right way for him because he was there to fulfill all of the righteousness. His, our salvation... All the good that is done to us is through him. Yes, we're baptized. But it's not our baptism that matters. It's his. Right? Yes, we worship. But it's flawed. It's not our worship. It's his that makes our worship acceptable. It's not our obedience to the Ten Commandments, though though we need to obey the Ten Commandments. But that isn't what makes us acceptable to God because it's imperfect, but His is not. He fulfilled all righteousness. And even in His baptism, He's reminding us that it's His obedience, not ours. I just want to um, deviate for just a moment and and talk to parents for for just a moment. I I think that there's, there's a prayer that should be central to all of our prayers for our children. And that when we present our children for baptism, this is in essence what we are, what we are saying to God. And that is, God, deal with my children not according to my obedience. 
deal with my children according to the obedience of Jesus Christ. Don't let my righteousness cover them, but let your righteousness cover them so that they are then able to find the salvation that is necessary because it's only in Jesus Christ. And so we remind ourselves of that and we pray that for our children from the moment of conception until we've passed from this world. And maybe possibly even after. It's conceivable that God will still have us pray that prayer. So the first element is, is I, 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 I trust Jesus by believing that he obeyed for me. Now, does that mean then, oh, good, I don't have to work at any obedience? Well, of course not. That's just silliness. We'll just move on. Uh, forgive that uh, flippant uh, uh, argument against that. He not only obeyed for you, but he also died for you. Look again at verse 16. It says, after being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. Came up immediately from the water. The word came up is a combination of two words in, in the Greek language. The first is a, a preposition meaning up. And the second one is, uh, that's translated as, as came comes from the word for foot. And it speaks of, of stepping forward. The idea is that he stepped up out of the water. And, it's the, and just picture this, okay? So he's, he's getting baptized probably in, in, in the river. He steps down in the river. He's baptized. Some will say he's baptized. Some will say he's baptized. I don't care about that. But then he comes up out of the river, right? And he steps up out of the river. Now, I just want to think about this for just a moment. This is Jesus beginning his ministry. He's just been baptized, and he steps up out of the river. Where is he going? He's going to the cross, right? Here we go. All right. Here we go. I've had this feeling frequently when I take teams to Belize, and we get off the airplane, and we start to head into to customs. And the first step, it's like, okay. Here we go. Now we're going. Now it begins. Here we are. We've done everything up to this point. Jesus has done everything. He's been baptized, and he steps up. Here we go. Now I'm moving toward that moment in which I will be nailed to the cross, and I will pray, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I think of 1 John 5, 6 through 8, when I think of this. First <clears throat> John 5, verse 6. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not with the water only, but with the water and with the blood. It is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and the three are in agreement. This idea of the water and the blood in my mind is this moment for Jesus that this is his ministry. His ministry is, is, is on these two sides. And you might say it's accepted then with the resurrection. But it begins with the water and it moves to the blood. And this is where he's going. So in his baptism, as he comes up out of the water, the picture is he comes up out of the water, moving toward the cross. That place where all of your sins were laid upon him. Hebrews tells us that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For the joy that was set before him, as Jesus prayed, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I've talked to you about this. I believe with all of my heart that the Father answered that question of his Son. Why have you forsaken me? And I believe that he revealed to him you and every one of your sins. At that moment, 
And as the eternal God, he could receive all of that information. And what did he do? He said, yeah, that's joy. Because I'm going to save these individuals and they will be with me forever. I can endure the cross because of that. And then he says to the Father, it's finished. It's finished. I paid them all, Father. I paid every last one of them. And he gave up his spirit. That's what's happening at that moment, that all of your sins are laid on him. That means you can't help any more than I can help the pilot. You can't help him forgive you, no matter what. So therefore, don't be afraid to confess, right? Isn't that what we bring to the relationship with God? He brings forgiveness, we bring sin, right? So it's kind of expected. This is the reality. So I'm not going to be afraid of confessing that I have indeed really sinned. I am guilty and asking him to forgive me of that. I don't have to be afraid of that moment. I can indeed confess and believe. There's no fear in that. So I trust Jesus, the Son, believing that he obeyed for me and that he died for me. And then I receive the Spirit. Again, in verse 16. He saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. Every candidate for uh, the ministry has to write a theological paper and present it to the presbytery to be examined to be sure that they're able to have some level of scholarship to be able to deal with the scriptures and deal with theology in an intellectual and a scholarly fashion. Uh, Mine was on the Holy Spirit in the church. That's what I decided to uh, present as my paper and uh, I was reviewing it recently because of some other things that were going on and and, uh, remembering um, that the, the, the work of the Holy Spirit, there are really five areas, five primary areas in which the Holy Spirit works with his church. And I want to walk through those so that we're just thinking about that because the Holy Spirit isn't always front and center, right? And I think, I think he likes that. Um, I, I really do. I think that that's kind of the role that the Spirit wants to take that uh, uh, the, the, the focus is on Jesus and he's just kind of making sure that that happens and that's, that's his role and he's, he's okay with that. But, but with that, sometimes we don't think about the Spirit, okay? And sometimes in Presbyterian churches, we don't think about it a lot, okay? So it, it, we don't always bring him up and we don't always address the Spirit in our prayer. And it's maybe something that we need to continually work on. But, but I want us to Meditate for a moment and understand what it is that the Spirit does. And the first thing that we see, the first work of the Spirit, is that, that he works in inspiration. And that is to say that the, the Spirit inspires the writer of Scripture, and that individual responds by writing out what the Word of God is. And so we, we understand that element of inspiration is a part of what the Spirit does. The second work of the Spirit is regeneration. And that is to, for us to be born again, to give life to us, is what the Spirit does. We recognize that we were dead in our transgressions and sins, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ. That's Ephesians chapter 2, uh, verse, uh, summary of 1 through 3, and then verse 4. And so he, he makes us alive. The Spirit gives us life. And what do we do when we're made alive? 
What's the first thing a baby does when it's, when it's born? It, it, it breathes, yeah. It hollers because it's breathing. It's breathing. Why does it breathe? Well, because God made it to breathe. That's what it's supposed to do. What's the first thing that the newborn person does? The Spirit gives us life. We believe. And in believing, we repent of our sin and we repent of our unbelief. It's called conversion. So we have repentance and, and uh, faith. And then the second thing is that the Holy Spirit then indwells us, that he's present with us. Now, this is something we, we can't make him do, right? And we can't lasso the Holy Spirit and say, come on into my heart, right? We're, he's God, we're not. And, and so he does that himself. And as we receive his presence, that is to say, we believe, we trust that he's present, it begins the process then of filling with the Spirit. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, we're told, do not get drunk with wine, which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. And what he does is he compares being filled with wine and being filled with the Spirit, being controlled by alcohol or being controlled by the Spirit of God. And he contrasts them together and saying, don't do that one, do this one. And to let the Holy Spirit control us. And I love to, to sit down and, and to think about the ways in which alcohol affects us. Not don't get that wrong. <clears throat> but it affects my vision, right? It affects my judgment. It affects my balance. It affects my speech. It affects my, my reflexes. What if, what if the Spirit of God affects all of those? By my submitting myself to His control, that He affects the way that I see things. He affects my balance. He affects my speech. He affects my reflexes that the Spirit of God is having that influence in my life. The passage following verse 18 shows ways in which that happens and that change that, that then works in us. The fifth way is sanctification. Sanctification is making us holy. Sanctification happens as we heed the Spirit's conviction. The Spirit convicts us of, of whatever, maybe convicts us of a truth or convicts us of, of, of a sin, and we exercise power, His power, so that we might grow in faith. As I've said many, many times, I think the only thing God's doing in our lives is working faith. He wants us to trust Him more. And what sanctification is, is a growth in faith. And so this is the way in which the Spirit is working in us. And so you see from this what it would mean for me to receive the Spirit in my life. Now, Jesus is fully God and fully in, in fellowship, you know, same, same, same Godhead as the Spirit, and so it's a, a, a different situation. But for us to begin to understand what it means that we're receiving Him means it involves us believing two ideas. The first is that He comes from heaven. He says that the heavens were open. He talks about the Spirit descending. And now I think it's important for us to remember that the Spirit is not the Spirit of this age, but the Spirit is coming from heaven. In uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, chapter 2, paragraph 3, we read this. In the unity of the Godhead, there be three persons of one substance, power and eternity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. The Father is of none, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father, and the Holy Spirit eternally proceeding from the Father and the Son. That is to say, the Holy Spirit is continually doing the desires of the Father and the Son. We know that the, that the Son uh, does the desires of the Father, right? And in that begotten relationship, he said, I did not come to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. We recognize that the Spirit does the same thing, that it is the Father who sends him and it's the Son who sends him, and he goes to do the will of God the Father and God the Son. And so recognizing that he's coming from heaven to work in our lives. Now, shouldn't that affect what our response is to the Holy Spirit? 
I mean, if I really stop and I think, well, well wait a minute, he's, he's coming from God. He's coming from heaven. I don't have to fight against him. Doesn't he probably know what's best? I know, that's like a serious understatement, isn't it? <laughs> Doesn't he probably know what's best? <laughs> maybe. In the sun, maybe a little warm, right? Same, same type of understatement. Romans chapter 8. I want to look at a, a few different passages here, verses from Romans 8, because this, this speaks so much of, of the work of the Spirit and for us to understand exactly what he's doing in our lives or maybe glimpsing a little bit of what he's doing in our lives is better. In verse 3, he says, For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, so that the requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. So we see that a part of what we're doing in recognizing the Spirit is coming from heaven is we're recognizing that He's giving us desires to do other things than we would normally want to do, than the world wants us to do. He's giving us a desire to do the things that God wants us to do. And so we submit to that. We see it more in verse 12. He says, So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. So this is the work that the Spirit is doing in our lives, and we can give ourselves to that, believing that He has come from heaven. Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And here the contrast is given between <clears throat> uh, being conformed to the world. And by world, it doesn't mean the world system. It's not the Greek word cosmos, which would speak of the world system. It's the word eon, which means age, the age in which we live to our culture, even our conservative Christian culture is not something we're to conform to. No, 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 no. It isn't that I grow in being a Christian when I make myself more like a Presbyterian. Goodness, no. I grow as a Christian when I become transformed by the Word of God changing my mind. That is what the power ought to be in each of our lives. And to be certain that that happens, it's by submitting myself to the Spirit who is moving in my life and giving myself to him, believing that he's come from heaven and believing also that he's given by Jesus. Jesus told us that he was going to give us the Spirit. In John chapter 14, verses 16 and 17. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. And we'll look at this in more depth next year, so come back. But for now to recognize that Jesus is here promising that he's going to give to us the spirit. And then he says again in chapter 16, verse 7, but I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. Isn't that an astounding thought? How many of you believe Jesus at that point? Right? It's like, no way, you missed that one, Jesus. I think it was better if you'd been here, right? 
But he's telling us, no, no, no. In reality, it's better for us than it was for the twelve. Unbelievably astounding words. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And then in verse 12, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you in all truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will disclose to you what is to come. What a great hope that the Spirit is going to be active in our lives. He's not just passive. He's not just in us like air. He's in us willing His will. Because Jesus sent Him. You know what I think that means? We need to be aware. We need to listen. Right? Forgive me, this tickle has been persnickety today. Google it and tell me if it means anything. But um, what was I talking about? I have noted for you, yeah, I'm there. I, thanks, Judy. I have noted that in, in, in my theological circles, we're noisy. I've never heard of a Presbyterian silent retreat. It's, it's like a contradiction of terms, right? We, we, have, uh, we had our conference, Voices Conference, and it was a lot of words, weren't there? <laughs> and it's good. It's good. I, I, I'm not complaining about that. But sometimes we've got to be still. That quote I use frequently of after a concert, someone came up to Rich Mullins and said, man, that was great. The Spirit, he was there. And Rich Mullins said, how would you know it was so loud? I like that. And you found it too when you're still. Your devotion's in the morning. Things are quiet. And you don't have to talk. To just be still. And I think Jesus is telling us that the Spirit is there. And He will guide us. And He will help us to understand. In those moments, listen and choose to submit. Some of you are counting and saying, that's two of the three members of the Godhead. Okay. So we trust Jesus, the Son, we receive the Holy Spirit, and then we rest in the Father. There's a parable of an old man walking on a dirt road with a heavy burden on his back, and a man in an ox cart comes by and takes compassion and says, Sir, Go ahead and you can ride in the ox cart and, and take a break. And so the man gets in and, and the ox cart goes on. After about a mile, the driver of the ox cart looks back and he sees the old man is still exhausted because he's still holding his backpack and his burden. And he's just riding in the cart. Does that sound like anyone here? Anybody you see in the mirror? It's also like the, the, the man old farmer during the barnstorming days when flight was brand new and in America and these pilots would go around and they'd take people up for flights and this family said we're going to get our, our, our grandpa a, a flight on an airplane and grandpa gets on the plane and goes off and comes back and they said what would you think grandpa? He says well it was alright but I never did quite put all my weight down on that thing I don't know about it 
And I think that that's a little bit of, of, of how sometimes we relate with, with God the Father. We don't put all our weight down, right? But he's holding us in the palm of his hand. But we're, we're trying to help, right? It's like sitting down in a chair, but, you know, kind of keeping a foot underneath and trying to, trying to help that chair hold you up. It's just wonderful, isn't it? It's exhausting, but that's how we sometimes will will rest as Christians, but to learn to rest, like we talked about trusting, to really release control, knowing that he accepts Jesus' work. He says in verse 17, Behold, a voice out of heaven said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. This is my beloved Son, that's beautiful when God says that to us, that I love you. But can you imagine the intensity of the love in which it's two members of the Godhead speaking to one another? And the Father saying, this is my son. And the love that God has for himself is being expressed at this moment. He says the same thing in, in Matthew chapter 17, in the transfiguration. And uh, let me go ahead and turn there briefly to just remind us we won't read the whole thing. But to remember that Moses and Elijah were there with Jesus. And Peter is just so taken back. He's like, well, let's, let's build tabernacles for them, right? And God the Father's like, okay. <laughs> Moses, Elijah, y'all need to leave, right? And he says, no, no, this is my son. This is the one that matters. These are great. And can you imagine seeing, seeing Elijah, who, who, who never died, in his body, right here with us, hanging out. I mean, we would all be like, yeah, Pastor Wood, sit down. We want to talk with Elijah. It would just be overwhelming. And God the Father says, no, 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 no. It's my son. This is the one. So at the beginning of Jesus' ministry and at the end of Jesus' ministry, as Jesus is about to begin his ministry, the Father comes to remind him, you're my son and I'm, I'm well pleased with you. At the end of his ministry, as he's about to go to the cross, the Father comes to him and says, you're my son. And he gives him what he needs, but he says it also to the crowd and reminds us of that reality, that Jesus is beloved by the Father. And therefore, I must be found in him. If I am going to receive love from the Father, I must be found in the Son, that beloved Son who is pleasing to the Father. If I am going to be pleasing to the Father, I must be found in that Son. There's no other place where I can be pleasing to the Father but in Jesus Christ. And I must find myself there in that place. How can I be found in Him? I must renounce my sin. I have that choice to make. Do I want to live in my sin or do I want to be found in Jesus? I cannot be both. And so I renounced that sin and said, I don't want that, but I want you, Lord Jesus Christ. I am guilty, but I need you. And so I turn to you. I renounce all other saviors. Nothing else, no one else can save me. I renounce the savior of my own goodness. I'm not good enough to be saved. I must be found in Jesus. I renounce my faith as being that which can save me. My faith is not perfect enough. I renounce the power of my church to save me. 
And I renounce the delusion that God won't even judge. All other saviors, I throw them aside and I seek to be found only in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I embrace his offer in which he says, come unto me all you who are weary and heavy laden. And so I come to him and I say, will you receive me and forgive me of my sins and cover me in your righteousness? And then I believe that the Father accepts me. He accepts me. Why? Because I'm in Jesus. And he says of his son, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. In him, the Father is pleased with me. Will you come to him today, please? I plead with you as your pastor, as a friend, as a follower of Christ, come to him today and trust in the salvation that he offers and knowing he will not only accept Jesus' work, but he will own you publicly. The voice came out of heaven. He declared, this is the one that I am pleased with. Well, the same is true for you who are found in Jesus. Ephesians chapter 2, going back to what I quoted earlier, verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ. Why? So that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. The term that I've heard a number of times is a trophy of grace. Trophies of grace. That we're on God's mantle. That He shows His grace. Though all the world rejects you, yet He does not. But He owns you as His own. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit exist in an eternal loving relationship. And he made you to share in the magnificence of that loving relationship. Is that not overwhelming? Oh my. Father, Son, and Spirit, united in purpose of saving you. You're saved by the triune God. Therefore, trust Jesus the Son. Receive the Holy Spirit and rest in the Father. Let's pray. Lord, we are overwhelmed with how wonderful you are. Thank you. Thank you for the salvation which you've given to us. We did not deserve it. We did not earn it and yet you give it fully and completely to us. Father, I pray for this congregation that you will help us to walk in that salvation. And would you, through us, bring men, women, and children to know that salvation as well. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.